the proclamation of God's word. You can find it on page seven in your worship folder. Our sermon text reading today is from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I was uh, glad when they said unto me, uh, let's hop in the car and head to Detroit, Michigan uh, and be with the saints at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It's a joy uh, to be with each of you. Uh, I want to say thank you for having me. Thank you uh, to your elders and all who are responsible for my being here. Um, thank you for your hospitality thus far, but if I can make uh, one request that would make me feel really welcome. Uh, is if you would talk back to me as we are preaching, as in the preaching moment. So if you feel something in your soul that says like, man, that dude is preaching, or the Lord is speaking, throw me an amen, uh, and that will make me feel comfortable. But if you lean down and take notes, that's fine as well. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We confess that we are a people who have heard many words this week, words of uh, things happening in the world, words of, uh, that have been said or heard in anger, words that have cut deeply. Uh, but this morning we come to this place where we need to hear a good word, a word from you. So would you speak to our hearts? Jesus, would you be the, the true preacher in the, the room? Would you take my little five loaves and two fish, and would you spread a banquet for your people to taste and see that you are good? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. One important facet of the civil rights movement that I often think goes uh, underlooked or over, over downplayed, if you will, uh, is how much music has played a role in both shaping and sustaining the movement. Songs such as Oh Freedom or We Shall Overcome provided the soundtrack to those who were marching through the segregated South at the time, seeking the fullness of their God-given rights. One song that was a favorite of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was the song Precious Lord, Take My Hand. The story goes that in moments of weakness, in moments of exhaustion and moments where it felt like the, the weight of the world was on Dr. King's shoulders, he would request this song to be sung. And here are the words, precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm and through the night, lead me on to the light, take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand lest I fall, precious Lord, 
take my hand and lead me home. And then the last verse, when the darkness appears and the night draws near and the day is past and gone, at the river I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand, take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. You see, this song is a song for pilgrims. It's a song for those who are on a journey. It's a song that in the words of my grandmother, a song for those who have been through some things. It's a song for those who are on a treacherous journey where they will need help. When the road gets dangerous, when the journey gets long, this song was meant to carry them through. In, the same, in a far greater way, Psalm 121 is a song for pilgrims. It's a traveler song. It's a song for those who are on a journey. It's the second of a collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. You see that in the heading. Psalms 120 to 134 are songs God's people would sing as they caravan up the mountain of Jerusalem to celebrate the various feasts and festivals that the Lord had appointed. And Psalm 21 uniquely characterizes these psalms as it is filled with the imagery of one who is on a journey. It reminds us that life is a journey that will lead us down some dark paths, and it testifies to us that we cannot make it on our own. The psalm is tailor-made to teach you and I that God is able to both help you and keep you. To state it in another way, God is able to help you and keep you when you cannot help or keep yourself. I want us to look at our text in two points this morning. I want us to see that the Lord is our helper. And then second, I want us to see that the Lord is our keeper. So first, the Lord is our helper. And second, the Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our helper. Verse one says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The psalm opens up with both a statement and a question. The statement, I lift my eyes to the hills, is a tad bit mysterious. Why is the psalmist looking to the hills? One could argue for a number of different interpretations, but I think the psalmist is looking to the hills with concern. You see, Jerusalem, the place where the temple is located, the place where God had promised to meet his people sat on and in the mountains. And back, of, back in the day, of course, you didn't just hop in the interstate and head to Jerusalem. It was hard to get to. It was surrounded on three sides by ravines that were about 200 to 400 feet deep. There's rough terrain everywhere. There was the potential to run into wild animals and run into robbers. There were dangers everywhere you went. And this is why the psalmist asked the question, from where does my help come? The psalmist, as he thinks of the journey, as he thinks of all the potential dangers, he says, where am I going to get help? See this question, from where does my help come, is a question that confronts us with the painful reality that you and I need help that you and I are are, are powerless and we need someone outside of us to help us. And this screams against our self-sufficient culture that screams that you and I can do anything. You and I have the ability in and of ourselves to overcome whatever obstacle is in front of us. Many of us perhaps live by the creed, when you get knocked down, you just get up again. 
or life is tough, but so are you. And beloved, both of these mottos or slogans are hopeless. And they're hopeless for the reason that you are not as strong as you think you are. And that life has a way to hit you hard enough where you can't fight back. I love the, the show Shark Tank. And in one episode, there was a man seeking to share uh, his product called Boost Oxygen. Boost Oxygen was a supplemental oxygen that was meant to help those who were biking or climbing in places of high altitude. You think of the Rocky Mountains. It is meant to be used to help one breathe in moments where the altitude is too high and the air is so thin. So basically, you would breathe in this can of oxygen uh, when you needed help breathing. And beloved, I share that because there are moments in life where the air is so thin and the, 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 the altitude is so high that you can hardly breathe. And in those moments, spiritually speaking, you need a divine oxygen to help your soul breathe. It can be those moments where a phone call snatches your breath away. It can be that moment where you are paralyzed with fear. It can be that, that moment where relational tension just won't go away. It can be that moment where you're navigating the crippling fog of depression. It can be you standing at the open grave of a loved one. It can be that moment where your sin is gnawing at you again and again. And in those moments, you find that your soul can hardly breathe. And you, whether you say these words or not, are simply echoing the psalmist saying, from where does my help come from? You can't help yourself. Your strength isn't gonna cut it. You need help. The journey is long. The burdens are heavy, the dangers are innumerable, the there are landmines everywhere. If help is going to come, then it must come from outside of you. You see, the psalmist answers his own question in verse two. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Notice what the psalmist does not say. He doesn't say my help comes in my relationships. He doesn't say that my help comes from my resources. He doesn't say that my help comes from my resume. He says that my help comes from the Lord. Now, this isn't to say that other means of help are illegitimate. You should get an education. You should get a job. You should see a doctor. You should work hard. You should plan wisely. But beloved, these are merely means of help, but never the source of your help. There are situations where you can't spend enough or learn enough or network enough to pull yourself out of. The psalmist says that the Lord alone is the only one qualified to provide the help that you need. Psalmist answers this question by invoking the covenant name of God. If you have your Bibles, you'll notice that the name Lord is capitalized. This is the name that God gives Moses at the burning bush. It is to say that the God who freed his people from slavery in Egypt is the one who is able to help them up this mountain. It's a name that is used to communicate that God has established a never-ending covenant with his people, that he will be our God and that we will be his people. Notice that phrase, who made heaven and earth. This is what, uh, this is a poetic device called a mirrorism. 
Amirism speaks of two, speaks of, of, of a part, two parts that speak of a whole. In other words, the psalmist, when he says, who made heaven and earth, is using a poetic device to simply say, God made everything. Beloved, why can God help you with anything? Because he made everything. Why can he help you with anything? Because he made everything. The psalmist can look to the hills with confidence and not with fear because God is the one who made those hills. You see, the God of this, gods of this world, they can't help you with anything because they didn't make anything. The reasons that the gods of all other religions cannot help anyone is because they were made by people. Psalm 115 verses four to seven says this about those who worship idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. This is why our idols always let us down. They always over-promise and under-deliver. They always promise redemption, but they only lead to enslavement. And suffering has a unique ability to expose that, doesn't it? That when you seek to lay the weight of your soul on your idol, it always seems to topple over. But beloved, that is not the case with our God. That is not the case of the Christian God. That is not the case of the God who is triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is able to help you for this basic reason because he made everything. That no matter the situation or the circumstance that you find yourself in, no matter the the problem that you are going through, God is able to help us because he made it all. Earlier this year, there was a video of a little boy that went viral on Instagram. Uh, and this video is this little boy at the doctor's office preparing uh, for his, uh, to get some blood drawn. And out of nowhere, uh, this little boy, it begins to cry at the top of his lungs as uh, the doctor pokes him and he says, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That may sound silly, but this little boy is teaching us something. That, 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 the, that the biggest problem that he is facing in his life, that as he sees that problem, he looks to the hills, to the God who is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that his God cannot do. This brings us to an important question. Where are you looking for help this morning? When your back is against the wall, when life seems to overwhelm you, When you feel like you have nowhere else to turn, where do you seek to get help? I think one tangible way to examine this is by looking at your own prayer life. Our prayer lives stand as a witness to where we think our help lies. One Baptist minister named Charles Spurgeon says this on the sermon on this very text. He reminds us of where our help comes from. He says, and I quote, help comes to saints only from above. They look elsewhere in vain. Let us lift up our eyes with hope, expectance, desire, and confidence. Satan will endeavor to keep our eyes upon our sorrows that we may be disquieted and discouraged. Be it ours firmly to resolve 
resolve that we will look out and look up for there is good cheer for the eyes. And they that lift up their eyes to the eternal hills shall soon have their hearts lifted up also. Beloved, lift up your eyes. Don't look inward, but look outward and upward to the Lord who is your helper. But not only is the Lord your helper, this text also testifies that the Lord is your keeper. That's our second point. The Lord is our keeper. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 121 is a song. And in every good song, there is a hook. A hook is a phrase that is meant to catch the listener's ears. It's often repeated so that when you think of the song, you think of the hook of that song. It is those words that you type into Google when you don't know what the song actually is. You see, Psalm 121 has a hook. And the hook is that word keeper that is repeated six times in verses three through eight. This word keeper in its original language means to to guard or to, to watch. It's used in Genesis 2 when God puts Adam in the garden for the purpose of working and keeping it. Later, it's used to describe the priest who were to protect the tabernacle. It's used to speak of one who was watching over the flock of God. In number six, you hear it in the benediction that I'm sure you use often, that, that may the Lord bless you and keep you. And it's important to also highlight that the psalm shifts from first person to third per- second person in verses three through eight. It's as if there is some sort of call and response going on between the priest and the people as they walk up the mountain. And in this call and response, we see that the Lord is our keeper in at least three ways. So before we move on, I'm gonna step down uh, and pause this mic so we can all stay together. So I'm gonna use this down here. Testing. Does this work? Sounds good. So the the, the psalmist tells us that, that the Lord is our keeper in at least three ways. First, he tells us that the Lord is our persistent keeper. If you look at verses three to four, it says this, he, who, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The statement, he will not let your foot be moved, is a statement that promises stability. In the ancient Near East, there weren't well-paved highways or streets. There was only the well-paved road of a well-trodden path, rugged terrain of a well-trodden path. And as the people walked along these paths, it was easy to stumble or to slip or to fall. It is to say that although the, the, the journey may be dangerous, God is able to keep you. Psalm 46 testifies that the mountains and the kingdoms of this world may slip, but not the people of God. Jude 24 says this, now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, both now and forevermore. It's the assurance that on this slippery journey, God is able to hold us steady. To say that he is our persistent keeper is to say that he will never stop keeping us. This is why the psalmist says, he who keeps Israel, he who keeps you will not slumber, 
Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I think the psalmist is repeating those words for emphasis. He wants us to know that God is a persistent keeper because God doesn't get tired or go to sleep. Beloved, our God never falls asleep at the will. God never needs a nap. He never, he, his protection covers us day and night. First Kings 18 records a battle between uh, the, the prophet Elijah and the false prophets of Baal. The rules of this contest are simple. An altar was erected, and the God who consumed the fire on that mountain was, would be the true and living God. First up were the false prophets of Baal. They began to cry out to their God and, and plead for him to, 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 to burn the altar of the sacrifice. They spent all morning doing this, but their God never answered. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27, Elijah says this, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he has fallen asleep and he needs to be awakened. Beloved, our God never needs to be awakened from a nap. Our God is always awake, providing care for us 24-7. As one preacher has said that our God works the night shift. The reason you and I can lay our head on our pillows at night is because God is still awake. The reason we can sleep soundly with all that is going on in this chaotic world is because God is still awake. Notice those parallel phrases, he, he who keeps you and he who keeps Israel. The psalmist is telling us that God is able to both keep you as an individual and also keep us as a church. He is able to keep not only you singular, but also y'all. God is a persistent keeper for the church and also for the individual Christian. How is this church still standing and thriving after all that you've been through this year? How are you still standing and moving along after all that you've been through? It is because the, the God who keeps this church is the same one who is keeping you. The Lord is a persistent keeper. But not only is he a persistent keeper, the text tells us that he is a present keeper. Look at verses five to six. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. This language of the sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night is to be understood, I think, symbolically. In the ancient Near East, it's hot. It was dangerous to be outside unprotected from the scorching heat of the sun. The moon speaks of the dangers that had the potential to overtake you at night. It is to say that the psalmist is simply trying to communicate that nothing can strike us. It doesn't matter if it's day or night, nothing can ultimately deliver a deadly blow. The question is why? And the answer simply is, is because God is present. Notice those beautiful words in verse five. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The promise of shade was rich in meaning for those ancients who were so often burned by the seat heat of the sun. And to be honest, 
Each one of you can imagine or each one of you has experienced a moment where the heat was unbearable and how beautiful and glorious the shade was. The psalmist is saying that the God, God who is high and lifted up, the God who is exalted above all things, draws near for the purpose of protecting us. He comes and stands between us and the sun. He comes by our side so that we can stand in our shadow. He himself is our shade. Beloved, God is present with you on this dangerous journey. Psalm 23 verse four is true. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Can you imagine how the game changes when you know, and I mean know in your bones, that God is present with you in the midst of any trial or circumstance. One writer commenting on this verse says this, isn't it true that the presence of another person in our frightful situations can lessen our fears? Fear doesn't want a series of impersonal steps, it wants a person. Walk in an unknown dark place by yourself and you are afraid. Hold someone's hand while you are in that dark place and fear ebbs. If we are comforted by the presence of a mere human being who might be less strong and brave than ourselves, how much more will we be comforted by the sworn presence of the reigning Christ? Beloved, God draws near to you in the midst of suffering. He is not a distant deity who is indifferent to your situation, but he is one who sits high but looks low. The Lord is our present keeper. Not only is the Lord our persistent keeper, our present keeper, but lastly, the text tells us that he is our perpetual keeper. Look at verses seven to eight. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist ends in the, with these two verses by seeking to encapsulate all that he has just said. First, he says that the Lord will keep you from all evil. This is a declaration of the totality of God's ability to keep us. Notice that beautiful word, all. It speaks of evil that is both seen and unseen, known and unknown. The psalmist then says that the Lord will keep your life, the, the, the Lord will preserve your soul, and then he doubles down in the first half of verse eight. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. This is simply another merism, a way to say that the Lord will keep the totality of your life. He will keep all of your life. And this brings us to another important question. What does it mean that the Lord will keep your life? Is this really true for the believer? Demiron, are you saying that this passage really promises all of these things? Is this some type of health and wealth and prosperity message? Does being a Christian mean that we get an easy life? And I think all of those are important and good and necessary questions, but I think they find their answer in that last phrase from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist ends by seeking of the perpetual nature of God's keeping of us. In other words, the psalmist isn't just simply 
thinking about getting to Jerusalem, but he is thinking about God's ability to protect us both now and in the life to come. You see, the type of keeping that Psalm 121 is talking about is spiritual keeping. It's speaking of this idea of of spiritual preservation. It's this promise that God is going to keep us both now in this life and in the life to come. It's a reassurance that nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Beloved, Psalm 121 is the Old Testament parallel to Romans chapter eight, verses 28 to 39. Listen to what Paul says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among believers, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him, gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the keeping that Psalm 121 is speaking of. It is this promise that God will keep and ensure that you will make it to the end. You see the help and the need, the help that we need and the protection that we are promised finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you and I can sing these truths only because Jesus sang and experienced them before us. You see, Jesus entered into this world to willfully embark up this mountain to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed up this mountain, he faced many temptations and dangers and toils and snares. And as he walks up this mountain, he never complains. He never doubts his God. He never says that this isn't fair. But Jesus, the obedient one, walks up to the city of Jerusalem. And it is outside of that very city where Jesus Christ suffers the wrath of God on our behalf, that he stands in our place as the obedient one who made it up the mountain. And the glorious news is that God kept and preserved his life by raising him from the dead. And Jesus promises that all who come to him will never be cast out. Jesus is able to keep us because God kept him. All of the blessings of Psalm 121 only come to us through the person 
and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, the good shepherd, who has told us that I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is this Jesus who says that I have began this good work in you and I will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is this Jesus who has said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is this Jesus who is right now in this moment interceding for you, assuring that you will make it home to glory. Beloved, our hope is not found in our ability to persevere but it is found in his ability to preserve us to the end. Every single one of God's children will make it home. And beloved, this is why, we could say many things about this, but this is why we gather together Sunday after Sunday. It is in this very space and in this very moment where God has promised to be present with us. It is as you and I hear these promises reaffirmed in the gospel as we hear it again and again, as we see these promises reenacted in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, it is through these things that we do here today where God takes us by the hand and leads us home. It is, it, it is by these means where, where Jesus comes down and walks with us just as we sang earlier. And just as the Israelites travel up the mountain to Jerusalem with dangers on all sides, you and I also travel up a different mountain looking to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city where we await the King coming down in glory. And as we walk on, as we march on, as we sing our own songs of Zion, God has promised again and again to take us by the hand and lead us home. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that all of these glorious promises are true. And we confess that they are often so hard to believe. So we ask that you would help our unbelief. We pray that you would feed us by your word and by your spirit and that we would follow you all the days of our life as you carry us home. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.